Section 15 of And Even Now by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 15. A Clergyman. 1918. Fragmentary, pale, momentary. Almost nothing. Glimpsed and gone. As it were, a faint human hand thrust up never to reappear from beneath the rolling waters of time. He forever haunts my memory and solicits my weak imagination. Nothing is told of him but that once, abruptly, he asked a question and received an answer. This was on the afternoon of April 7th, 1778, at Streatham, in the well-appointed house of Mr. Thrale. Johnson, on the morning of that day, had entertained Boswell at breakfast in Bolt Court, and invited him to dine at Thrale Hall. The two took coach and arrived early. It seems that Sir John Pringle had asked Boswell to ask Johnson what were the best English sermons for style. In the interval before dinner, accordingly, Boswell reeled off the names of several divines whose prose might or might not win commendation. Atterbury, he suggested. Johnson. Yes, sir, one of the best. Boswell. Tillotson? Johnson. Why, not now. I should not advise anyone to imitate Tillotson's style. Though, I don't know, I should be cautious of censuring anything that has been applauded by so many suffrages. South is one of the best, if you accept his peculiarities and his violence, and sometimes coarseness of language. Seed has a very fine style, but he is not very theological. Jorton's sermons are very elegant. Sherlock's style, too, is very elegant, though he has not made it his principal study. And you may add Smallridge. Boswell. I like Ogden's sermons on prayer very much, both for neatness of style and subtlety of reasoning. Johnson. I should like to read all that Ogden has written. Boswell. What I want to know is, what sermons afford the best specimen of English pulpit eloquence? Johnson. We have no sermons addressed to the passions that are good for anything, if you mean that kind of eloquence. A clergyman, whose name I do not recollect. Were not Dodd's sermons addressed to the passions? Johnson. They were nothing, sir, be they addressed to what they may. The suddenness of it. Bang! And the rabbit that had popped from its burrow was no more. I know not which is the more startling. The debut of the unfortunate clergyman, or the instantaneousness of his end. Why hadn't Boswell told us there was a clergyman present? Well, we may be sure that so careful and acute an artist had some good reason, and I suppose the clergyman was left to take us unawares, because just so did he take the company. Had we been told he was there, we might have expected that, sooner or later, he would join in the conversation. He would have had a place in our minds. We may assume that, in the minds of the company around Johnson, he had no place. He sat forgotten overlooked, so that his self-assertion startled everyone, just as, on Boswell's page, it startles us. 
in johnson's massive and magnetic presence only some very remarkable man such as mr burke was sharply distinguishable from the rest others might if they had something in them stand out slightly this unfortunate clergyman may have had something in him but i judge that he lacked the gift of seeming as if he had that deficiency however does not account for the horrid fate that befell him one of johnson's strongest and most inveterate feelings was his veneration for the cloth to any one in holy orders he habitually listened with a grave and charming deference to-day moreover he was in excellent good humour he was at the thrales where he so loved to be the day was fine a fine dinner was in close prospect and he had had what he always declared to be the sum of human felicity a ride in a coach nor was there in the question put by the clergyman anything likely to enrage him dodd was one whom johnson had befriended in adversity and it had always been agreed that dodd in his pulpit was very emotional what drew the blasting flash must have been not the question itself but the manner in which it was asked and i think we can guess what that manner was say the words aloud were not dodd's sermons addressed to the passions they are words which if you have any dramatic and histrionic sense cannot be said except in a high thin voice you may from sheer perversity utter them in a rich and sonorous baritone or bass but if you do so they sound utterly unnatural to make them carry the conviction of human utterance you have no choice you must pipe them remember now johnson was very deaf even the people whom he knew well the people to whose voices he was accustomed had to address him very loudly it is probable that this unregarded young shy clergyman when at length he suddenly mustered courage to cut in let his high thin voice soar too high inasmuch that it was a kind of scream on no other hypothesis can we account for the ferocity with which johnson turned and rended him johnson didn't we may be sure mean to be cruel the old lion startled just struck out blindly but the force of paws and claws was not the less lethal we have endless testimony to the strength of johnson's voice and the very cadence of those words they were nothing sir be they addressed to what they may convinces me that the old lion's jaws never gave forth a louder roar boswell does not record that there was any further conversation before the announcement of dinner perhaps the whole company had been temporarily deafened but i am not bothering about them my heart goes out to the poor dear clergyman exclusively i said a moment ago that he was young and shy and i admit that i slipped those epithets in without having justified them to you by due process of induction your quick mind will have already supplied what i omitted a man with a high thin voice and without power to impress any one with a sense of his importance a man so null in effects that even the retentive mind of boswell did not retain his very name would assuredly not be a self-confident man 
even if he were not naturally shy, social courage would soon have been sapped in him, and would in time have been destroyed by experience. That he had not yet given himself up as a bad job, that he still had faint, wild hopes, is proved by the fact that he did snatch the opportunity for asking that question. He must, accordingly, have been very young. Was he the curate of the neighboring church? I think so. It would account for his having been invited. I see him as he sits there, listening to the great doctor's pronouncement on Atterbury and those others. He sits on the edge of a chair, in the background. He has colorless eyes, fixed earnestly, and a face almost as pale as the clerical bands beneath his somewhat receding chin. His forehead is high and narrow, his hair mouse-colored, his hands are clasped tight before him, the knuckles standing out sharply. This constriction does not mean that he is stealing himself to speak. He has no positive intention of speaking. Very much, nevertheless, is he wishing, in the back of his mind, that he could say something, something whereat the great doctor would turn on him and say, after a pause for thought, "'Why, yes, sir, that is most justly observed,' or, "'Sir, this has never occurred to me. I thank you.' thereby fixing the observer forever high in the esteem of all. And now, in a flash, the chance presents itself. "'We have,' shouts Johnson, "'no sermons addressed to the passions that are good for anything.' I see the curate's frame quiver with sudden impulse, and his mouth fly open, and— "'No, I can't bear it. I shut my eyes and ears.' but audible even so is something shrill, followed by something thunderous. Presently I reopen my eyes. The crimson has not yet faded from that young face yonder, and slowly down either cheek falls a glistening tear. Shades of Atterbury and Tillotson, such weakness shames the established church. What would Jorton and Smallridge have said? What seed and south? And, by the way, who were they, these worthies? It is a solemn thought that so little is conveyed to us by names, which to the Paleo-Georgians conveyed so much. We discern a dim, composite picture of a big man, in a big wig and a billowing black gown, with a big congregation beneath him. But we are not anxious to hear what he is saying. We know it is all very elegant— we know it will be printed, and be bound in finely tooled full calf, and no paleo-Georgian gentleman's library will be complete without it. Literate people in those days were comparatively few, but, baiting that, one may say that sermons were as much in request as novels are today. I wonder, will mankind continue to be capricious? It is a very solemn thought indeed that no more than a hundred and fifty years hence the novelists of our time, with all their moral and political and sociological outlook and influence, will perhaps shine as indistinctly as do those old preachers with all their elegance, now. Yes, sir, some great pundit may be telling a disciple at this moment, Wells is one of the best. Galsworthy is one of the best, if you accept his concern for delicacy of style. 
Mrs. Ward has a very firm grasp of problems, but is not very creational. Kane's books are very edifying. I should like to read all that Kane has written. Miss Corelli, too, is very edifying. And you may add Upton Sinclair. What I want to know, says the disciple, is what English novels may be selected as specially enthralling. The pundit answers, We have no novels addressed to the passions that are good for anything, if you mean that kind of enthrallment. And here some poor wretch, whose name the disciple will not remember, inquires, Are not Mrs. Glynn's novels addressed to the passions? And is, in due form, annihilated. Can it be that a time will come when readers of this passage in our pundit's life will take more interest in the poor nameless wretch than in all the bearers of those great names put together, being no more able or anxious to discriminate between, say, Mrs. Ward and Mr. Sinclair, than we are to set Ogden above Sherlock or Sherlock above Ogden? It seems impossible. But we must remember that things are not always what they seem. Every man illustrious in his day, however much he may be gratified by his fame, looks with an eager eye to posterity, for a continuance of past favours, and would even live the remainder of his life in obscurity, if, by so doing, he could ensure that future generations would preserve a correct attitude towards him for ever. This is very natural and human, but, like so many very natural and human things, very silly. Tillotson and the rest need not, after all, be pitied for our neglect of them. They either know nothing about it, or are above such terrene trifles. Let us keep our pity for the seething mass of divines who were not elegantly verbose, and had no fun or glory while they lasted. And let us keep a specially large portion for one whose lot was so much worse than merely undistinguished. If that nameless curate had not been at the Thrales that day, or, being there, had kept the silence that so well became him, his life would have been drab enough in all conscience. But, at any rate, an unpromising career would not have been nipped in the bud. And that is what, in fact, happened. I'm sure of it. A robust man might have rallied under the blow. Not so our friend. Those who knew him in infancy had not expected that he would be reared. Better for him had they been right. It is well to grow up and be ordained, but not if you are delicate and very sensitive, and shall happen to annoy the greatest, the most stentorian, and roughest of contemporary personages. A clergyman never held up his head or smiled again after the brief encounter recorded for us by Boswell. He sank into a rapid decline. Before the next blossoming of Thrale Hall's almond trees, he was no more. I like to think that he died forgiving, Dr. Johnson. End of section 15